not obviously uh, met in a while. It's been a little while. But we were in a nice groove uh, last time we were together. We had some nice momentum going. Um, so one of the things that, you know, that we're doing here as a church, uh, as a Calvary Chapel, is we just go you know, through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, because we believe you know, at the end of the day that it really is like God actually did write it. He used a lot of people to write it over some time uh, and some history. But we actually believe in faith that it's God's Word. And so we want to want to that because we really believe that He's actually talking to us through His Word, through the Bible. And as crazy as it sounds, we almost uh, organize everything, in our el- everything else in our lives around what's in that Word and what God said and the principles that are in there and how Jesus lived. Um, and so we covered one entire book uh, in the Bible. We covered the book of Acts, the early church when it started. That's what, what we were doing last time. And when we left off, I'm, I don't even know if you remember, but a couple of months ago, right, two months ago, uh, we just started one of the Gospels. We haven't done a Gospel yet. Um, and so we were in Matthew. And uh, we arrive uh, in Matthew now to where Jesus... Uh, it's kind of really just starting his ministry. Because we left off at Matthew. He was actually taken in the desert for 40 days. And uh, he was tempted by the devil himself. And then after that, it's kind of like when he really arrives on the scene, when he really starts his ministry. Right around 30 years old, right after that, just dramatic experience. I mean, 40 days, no food, no water, nothing. They say your body really can't survive much longer uh, than that. Uh, and he wasn't even really the first guy to do it, which is pretty amazing. You know, Moses did it, Elijah did it. Um, so we're going to pick up today in Matthew chapter 5. So if you got your Bibles, I believe that uh, there's either uh, probably a blue one or a white one there in front of you. Uh, and you can turn to chapter 5 uh, in Matthew. That'll be in the New Testament. First book there. And as you're turning there, let me kind of set the stage for where we're headed. Okay? Um, obviously, the Beatitudes... That's what we're going to be talking about. But it's kind of like attitudes, happiness, sort of intertwined together. So that's what we'll be talking about. So let me start off by saying, let's see if this one part of our thing works. Why would that work? Well, there is an article uh, in Time Magazine that came out. I'm going to start off with this article and kind of tie us into where we're headed. Uh, There's an article in Time Magazine, uh, Do We Need $75,000 a Year to Be Happy? Because right, we're talking about the Beatitudes today. Because uh, all of them start like, Blessed be the man who such and such. Blessed be the man who such and such. Blessed be the man who such and such. And that term blessed could also be translated happy, um, fortunate. And, but it's really kind of a deeper, more noble uh, translation to where it's blessed. Right? Not just happy, but actually blessed. It kind of takes it to another level. And so that's why this word happy is, is, is coming in here. So do we need $75,000 a year to be happy? It's pretty interesting. So these guys did a study of I think 450,000 people. So a pretty good sized study. And uh, here's what they were uh, studying and here's what they were figuring out. Um, it says the lower a person's annual income falls below the benchmark, the unhappier he or she feels. But no matter how much more than 75,000 uh, people make, they don't report any greater degree of happiness. So they did this study and they pulled a bunch of people and they basically said, how happy are you with your life? Like, how do you feel about it? Um, And so they broke it down to numbers as far as how much per month. And they found that the people that are making like less than $75,000 a year um, had greater dissatisfaction with their life. And the ones that were making uh, that right amount per month to work out to be $75,000 a year, uh, they actually were a little bit more happy. But they also noticed in the study that even if you made a lot more, maybe double, triple, $75,000, it didn't really add a whole lot more to their happiness at all, which is pretty interesting. And there's one part um, in here that I highlighted that I thought was pretty important. It says the more they made, the more they felt their life was going well. The ones that are actually making the money and doing okay. And they felt like their life was going better because they had some more money and in the study it said that they felt like they could like go out to eat with their friends, you know, and go hang out and like it wouldn't be that much of an issue. Um, but they found in the study that if people already weren't making very much money, uh, not even be able to do those things just added more stress and more dissatisfaction to their life. So a couple of things I noticed from the study uh, was one thing is that money uh, can certainly be very dangerous, right? It could certainly be very dangerous to get you to think that, well, as long as I got enough, life is going pretty well. And that's what the people thought in the study. As long as we're making like a decent amount of money, life must be going pretty good. 
Um, and in fact, they close up the study with um, saying um, that as far as their life satisfaction and money, the correlation between the two, um, they might not be happier, but they feel like they're happier because they're making a little bit more money. So it's pretty interesting how money can kind of be you know, pretty deceptive with that. And other things can be deceptive like that too, depending upon how relationships are going and other things that happen in life. But they close up the study, pretty interesting. It says Americans come out to be a mixed lot. It says they're fifth in terms of happiness, 33rd in terms of smiling, and 10th in terms of enjoyment. At the same time, they're the 89th biggest warriors, the 69th saddest, and the fifth most stressed people out of the 150 nations studied. Right, so it's pretty interesting. So America overall, pretty successful country, doing pretty well. We have a little bit of money, we have a lot of stuff. Um, but at the same time, uh, we're huge warriors, we're sad, and we're super stressed out. So we have all these anxiety, stress issues that we don't really know how to handle, but hey, if we can kind of cover it and throw some money at it and take care of that part, uh, you know, we think we're doing better than what's really going on. And don't you think that would be like a great tool for maybe Satan to use to just to divert our attention and to get us to be really complacent by just maybe just flooding some more money like into an area because that just gets our attention really quickly and it makes us think, you know, we're doing better. At least according to this study. Um, and so it can create us with a sense of denial. And I think that's why it's so hard like to plant a church you know, in Connecticut and have Christianity be like a normal type, normal part of life in the Northeast because we have like a good amount of money in the Northeast. Pretty, people are pretty comfortable. Um, so I think that's why it makes it difficult. I'm making a decent amount of money. My life is not perfect. Um, certainly things could be better, but I must be doing okay because money coming in kind of decent. Um, now with that being said, I, you know, I read through that study and I look at all this stuff and I'm like, man, I cannot relate to any of that. But I guess that's kind of the mindset that's going on out there um, as far as people that are making that kind of money. Here's a couple people that were uh, pretty creative. They have some quotes on happiness. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau says, happiness is a good bank account, a good cook, and a good digestion. That's what he thought happiness was. Um, and then there was another one. Uh, from uh, Elvis Presley, just before uh, he died, a reporter asked him, uh, you know, you made all this money, you did all this stuff, you know, uh, how do you feel? Uh, says, uh, Elvis, when you first started playing music, you said you wanted to be rich, famous, and happy. Are you happy? And he says, I'm lonely as H-E double hockey sticks, he replied. Right, so it didn't really buy him happiness there. And then one other person had a quote, uh, money can't buy happiness, but it can, however, rent it. Right? And that's kind of like that article. Because I have a friend, uh, he's a good friend of mine, he's not a Christian, um, and, and we always get talking about you know, different things. And sometimes money comes up, and he's just adamant. He's like, listen, he's like, Jared, if I made enough money, and, and you know, I wasn't stupid about it, he's like, my life would be tremendously better, and I would be happier. And you know, so we go back and forth on this thing all the time. Um, I don't know. I, I hope that um, he'll be able to see sooner or later that you know, money just isn't really going to do it, nor is really the most successful relationship in the world, uh, nor is any other really ideal that we might have in our head. And that's what Jesus is going to be talking about um, in the Beatitudes. And so as we're talking about you know, happiness, uh, I'm curious, you know, what are some of the happiest, most enjoyable, most fulfilled moments in your life? And I think that in the bulletins, if you got one, I'm not sure we were kind of shuffling around like crazy today and... Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to get one, but in there, uh, there's that part that says to kind of get the juices flowing about today. If you actually had to sit there and think about, okay, what were like the top five, top three best moments of my life, the times where I felt the happiest? You know, when were, when were they? Uh, maybe it was uh, when you met a particular person for the first time. Uh, maybe it was when you had a uh, first child. Maybe it was like a huge promotion at work. Um, who knows? I'm, I'm curious to see what it might be. And then, if you're a Christian, I wonder if some of those top three, top four, top five that you're just thinking about right now, if they have anywhere in there, Christ in there somewhere. Um, 
are those maybe, do they fall into any of those, you know, top three, top five happiest moments in your life? Uh, I can re remember, um, you know, a great time. A guy who helps us out, uh, Sal in the back there. One of the happiest moments of my life is, you know, we grew up together, good friends, all through, jeez, uh, ever since fifth grade. Uh, been a long time. And in fact, uh, it was at summer camp. I just moved uh, to Rocky Hill, the Hartford area. And I was uh, going to like a, like a day camp because it was during summertime. And I was, I was a pretty quiet kid, pretty shy. And this uh, would be a decent way for me, for me to at least get to know some kids before school started. And so I get there and uh, we're in the gym doing something. I don't remember what we're doing. And I see this kid and he is just like one of the worst mouths I've ever heard for like a 10 year old. I was like, wow, I had no idea there were that many bad words. And so there he is, just saying all this bad stuff and it kind of caught my attention uh, and I was just like kind of blown away by it. And uh, for whatever reason, I don't even remember really how our conversation uh, started. I think actually he probably initiated it, me being the challenge, probably like, hey, hey, you know, who are you, where are you from? And, and for whatever reason, you know, we clicked. And I saw a different Sal than everybody else saw when we hung out together. Like he was just a different person. He wasn't really trying to show off. He wasn't um, trying to have maybe other people like him. It was just we had a great relationship just me and him together, but then kind of when other people were around, it kind of got weird. Um, but part of, one of the happiest moments of my life for sure. Uh, he's definitely up there. I don't know if there's a top 10, top 15, whatever, but he's in there. And so when we were sitting in the driveway at his house, you know, and we said that salvation sinner's prayer, in the driveway, he's like, Jerry's like, listen, I'm tired of messing around. He's like, um, you know, I just want to know, you know, who this Christ is, and I want to know about Christianity, and I want to live for him. And you got to understand his background, uh, staunchly Catholic, and he had a lot of questions, and he was at college at the time, and he went to Sacred Heart University, not too far away in Fairfield, and um, asked his uh, professors and even the resident, you know, ministers, all these kinds of questions, and asked them, you know, where... Where does Catholicism stand on this? And what is this about? Why do you do this? And why do you do that? And so he struggled and kind of wrestled with all that stuff. Um, and so just to get to that point in the driveway to have him say, geez, you know, I think that, I think that this is really, honestly, the only genuine, real way to go about Christ. Um, that's the relationship that I want. I mean, that was just, that was tremendous. Um, so that's huge. And then there's certainly other, you know, happiest moments in my life. And you have them too. Um, but one key part, let's see if we can get it again, we can't, but one key part that's really important for us to know, that if we're Christ followers, if we're Christians, God does care about our happiness, but maybe in a different way. And here's what I mean. So God doesn't just care about our happiness, He cares about our holiness. Like that's one phrase I've been had kind of like ringing through my head um, this week and kind of thinking about and as we're going through this stuff um, I don't know it's just been there's been a dominant thought God does not just care about our happiness He cares about our holiness now maybe by looking at that and taking face value you might say well geez you know, if, you know He doesn't care about my happiness you know uh, just my holiness that, that doesn't seem like really a great thing for me but we have to look at it through like Jesus through God's lens his thinking is, I created you, I know you, I've given you these gifts, I've given you these abilities, I've given you these talents. I know that. If you just play by my rules and stick with me and set yourself apart and live what's a holy life, there's that word sanctified, it means be set apart. If you live like this holy life, you will actually experience and enjoy true happiness true freedom. You'll truly experience that. And so you see that, and it, well, the goal is not happiness for God. You know, sometimes it might be for us, you know, I mean, just, you know, you want to be happy, and, you know, happiness can be up and down all the time, depending on that, you know, how your day went, if you had breakfast that day, and you didn't get stuck in traffic, and you had maybe a nice conversation at work, but then you got bad news that day, like, then you go back down again, and so it's just, you know, it can go all over the place. But, he's concerned with our holiness, which will actually, in turn, believe it or not, uh, keep us happy. And to God, this process of sort of developing this blessed life, this happy life, that's really what he's concerned about. Because he doesn't want us to just like 
finish like these goals and be productive with certain things. Uh, he actually cares about the process. So, one claim uh, is that uh, I think is that happiness has more to do with our attitudes um, than almost anything else. Because if God cares about like this process and like how we're doing it, the attitudes matter. So. Take a look at, listen to this quote, you might have heard it before by uh, Chuck Swindoll. He says, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. Or uh, this one, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, the education, the money, the circumstances, than failure, than successes, than what other people may think, say, or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. I think that's like a great quote that really puts it into perspective. Because if like enjoying life and happiness in life is really the goal, um, <laughs> you know yourself from personal experiences, it goes up and down and kind of crazy all the time. And there's certain things outside of our control outside of our control that we just we can't do anything about. We just kind of have to take it sometimes. You know, this is a fallen world. There's ugliness in it. Um, God can kind of work with that and twist it and have glory come to Him in the end out of it. But the question is, like, will we actually let Him do it? That's the difficult part. And that's the part He really cares about. He's like, you know, did you not only get through that storm and get through that trial and get through that difficulty, did you just survive? Because some of you are just like, geez, you know, I just kind of just survived that. Or, here's the tough part for a Christian, did you actually survive and bring glory to me out of it? And actually learn some things in the process so that way if you come in contact with somebody else, you could actually comfort them and help them and impart to them how I was there for you, how God was there for you, how He helped you out. Like That's like the next level of Christianity for mature Christians. And I hope, you know, for Christ followers, like that's where we want to be headed. Because those intentions in the heart and how we handle that process, that's the thing that really matters to God. And nobody can see that. Nobody can tell that. God can only really see that and tell that. Now, maybe you disagree. Maybe you say, well, listen, you know, uh, some things, you know, are definitely very awful. I mean, if you have a sudden death, certainly happen right away. If there's like abuse or something right away, um, Yes, your attitude could play a part, but you know, it can also be a grieving process. I mean, hopefully everything doesn't like take root and just ruin you for a long time. You know, God understands that too. Um, but I think a big part of life is certainly, you know, attitude. Consider this guy. We got, yeah, we got a picture of him up here. This guy, Viktor Frankl. Incredible story. And I think he really puts into perspective as far as like how much and how important attitudes are. So this guy, Viktor Frankl, uh, you can Google him if you want when you get home. V-I-K-T-O-R. I should have spelled it up here. F-R-A-N-K-L. Victor Frankl. Uh, I think he passed away in 1997. He was a Holocaust survivor. He lost his family, his wife, his kids, um, all in the concentration camps. And they would continuously um, ask him for information and offer him no food, you know, and just the whole torturous scenario. Have him come naked in front of, you know, whatever the board was there. Grill him for information um, and just really make his life absolutely miserable. Just trying to get anything they could out of this guy. And so what he said is that he said, you know what, I was at the lowest of the low, honestly the worst part of my life. Um, and they really, they took everything from me. And if you read about the story and you Google it, how much he loved his wife, you know, and his family, it's just incredible. Uh, he's like, but they took all of that from me. Everything that I had, they stripped it from me. And they tried to make it worse. He said the one thing they couldn't have, which I could hold on to, 
and they could never touch. It was my attitude and how I was going to approach it. He said, they couldn't ruin it. He said, they wanted to ruin that for me? He said, they couldn't. And so I'd go back and think of memories with my family, with my wife, and said, those are things that they could never, ever touch. And so, hopefully we never get put in a place like a Viktor Frankl where all you got to hold on to is really just your attitude. It's the only thing you could really control because everything has been stripped of you. Hope we don't get to that spot. But I think it just paints a dramatic picture of the point that, geez, you know, our attitudes certainly matter a lot. And we're going to see in a minute from Matthew 5, um, it matters a great deal because Jesus is going to talk about how this is really like a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual issue. Because uh, in, in the article, it talks about how there's really two kinds of happiness, kind of the day-to-day, -day, how are you going to make it, how's your day going? And then there's the second kind of, how do you actually feel about yourself in your life? Are you actually happy about it? And so that's the part that Jesus wants to really address. And if you go online, uh, you know, you can find like a bunch of articles, and this is different, huh? Like stepping up, like, this is weird. So, um, you know, you can go online, you can see... Uh, different articles that tell you, you know, if you want to experience happiness, you know, you should be generous. Um, you should, you know, kind of make other people, you know, feel better in life. Uh, you know, practice taking va vacations. Uh, invest time in meaningful relationships. Um, all these practical ways, which are good ideas, and, and they'll probably help your days. But I don't think they'll take care of that other part of happiness, which is like really deep down, um, the things that really matter. So, let's take a look at what Jesus actually says about happiness, what he says about attitudes, uh, and we'll take a look there. So let me just preface it by saying this. Here's what the Beatitudes are not. And I think it's on the slide up there. Maybe we can get it to go. Yes, we got it. Here's what the Beatitudes are not. Okay? They are not ultimate keys uh, for an easy, trouble-free, happy life. So it's like you kind of go through each of these that Jesus is talking about and you say, okay, I'm going to try and do this, I'm going to try and allow that one, I'm going to try and have God do this through me. It's not really a guarantee that things will go any easier uh, or smoother. Uh, in fact, maybe sometimes it might be more difficult. So the question is, why the heck would you want to do it, right? We'll get to that in a minute. Um, they're also not the type of attitude that the world says, says is successful. So if we were to go around and maybe ask some successful people in the world, they would say, you know, you got to seize every opportunity, which I probably agree with, but then they would say, you know, you got to step on whoever you can to get there, you know, don't help anybody else out, and just have this really forceful kind of mindset of making it happen, which I believe is probably partially true. But as we're going to read in a minute, the attitudes that Christ are talking about are a little bit similar. It's kind of like a balancing act of sort of knowing when to be forceful and have those things, but also yet carry out what God is talking about. And these Beatitudes that we're going to be talking about, that Christ will be talking about, it's not really for non-Christians. I mean, it's not really going to make any sense because Jesus starts right with Himself. He starts with God and then He goes from there. So it wouldn't really make any sense if you don't really believe in Jesus and uh, what He's about. So let's take a look. Let's see what they actually say. So in chapter 5. So you got to remember, right? He's just now starting. He's just now starting his ministry as far as teaching. The only really teaching ministry he's done so far is he just plagiarized John the Baptist. That's really his only teaching ministry he had so far. All he did is he just said, Repent, for the kingdom is near. And that's what John the Baptist is saying. So that's all really that Jesus has done. He's done a few miracles, but that was like really his only message he's done. He plagiarized. Um, I guess that's okay. He could do that because uh, he's Jesus. And I think he gave proper credit when he said it. So probably okay. So now here he goes to his first teaching ministry form. So it says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. So he had a lot of people following him by this point. Huge crowd because of how many miracles he was doing. They were just being sick people, all kinds of people to him, and um, he had a huge crowd. So his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying... Now notice, it says his disciples came to him. So people that were already interested in God, interested in Jesus, interested in what he might be saying, 
these are the people that he's talking to. Because they actually want to know more. Alright God, like how are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to do this thing? All we have had for a model so far is like the Pharisees and the religious leaders. We have their model. And basically, the way they do things is do as I say, not as I do. And that's why Jesus had such a hard time with that. And maybe you can relate a little bit to that. Maybe you haven't had maybe the greatest model as far as how to live out Christianity. Maybe you can refer back to someone and say, geez, you know, if I don't know how to be a Christian. You know, I should you know, pay attention to their life. Or something might stick out in your mind. But maybe you don't have it. And so what Jesus is doing is he's trying to now reestablish like what it would really look like for a Christian. This is like Christianity 101 on the mountainside with Jesus. Like that's really what he's breaking this down to be. So here's how he starts off. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we'll keep going and then, then I'll come back and talk about some of these. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way the persecuted, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so you can see why they call them the Beatitudes, right? Blessed be, and then you just follow along and put it in the blank. And as you go through and you look at it, um, he basically gives uh, us a statement of what we should be, and then he follows it up with what will happen when you do that. Almost like a cause and effect type model. And as you can see, I can pretty much guarantee, like, if you talk to most people, if you were to Google it, how do you get a happy life? How do you change your attitude in life? How do I make the attitude become what I want? Or if you click on Yahoo, you probably won't see the title, like, uh, Nine Ways to Make Your Life Better, and then, like, come across this passage. It's not really going to happen. It's really more for Christians. So it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. So does that mean that people who are like maybe depressed and um, are having a hard time in life, um, those are the ones that are going to be like happy and those are the ones that like get into heaven? You know, what is that really saying? Well, blessed are the poor in spirit. Here's what that phrase means. That phrase means, when you translate it from the original language, that means when you come to the place where you realize that God actually is who He says He is. You're just like overwhelmed. And if you've had this experience and you're a Christian, that's probably when you made the commitment to follow Him. Maybe it didn't happen right at then, but at some point along the line, you've probably had the experience where you're like, oh my goodness, this is the God that I read about. This is, this is who He is. That's what porn spirit is. So when you read about, like, go to Isaiah chapter 6. And what happens is, Isaiah kind of has like this radical call on his life. And God kind of shows up. And Isaiah's like, oh my goodness. I shouldn't even be in the same room with you. Uh, and what he says, his phrase is, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I would probably say, I'm a man of unclean lips, unclean mind, and unclean everything. Like, I shouldn't even be in the same domain you are in right now. When you actually realize the sovereignty and the awesomeness of who God really is, that's the poor in spirit. Jesus is saying, listen, when you come to that point in your life and you understand who God is and actually who you are, those are the blessed people. Because everything is going to change from here on out. Because now you're seeing life for what it really is. A relationship between us and relationship between God. There's all this other stuff to do. You know, there's church on Sunday mornings. You know, this is just part of the process. This is just like a supplement to your week. The real good stuff should be happening. The real good relationship should be happening during the week. Just setting aside the time. 
being in the car, shutting off, uh, you know, the radio for a minute, maybe turning on a praise song, maybe opening up the Bible, taking out the notebook, writing some things down, or something just tremendously awful is happening in your life, where you're really irritated and frustrated and distressed about something, shutting everything down, getting that time, and even telling God about it. God, I don't know where you are. I'm trying to do things the right way, and it seems like things are just getting worse. I need to know what you're doing. That is what the relationship really boils down to. In your bulletins, you might notice that I've kind of changed up the theme a little bit, right? At church here, we had uh, our theme, our like, slogan was Church Without Religion to emphasize the fact that uh, this would be a church where people uh, focus on the relationship to God and maybe not, not necessarily all the other steps that are involved. Although they are important, you want to do them for the right reasons. So I changed it a little bit and I put, He wants your heart. Right? Referring back to that passage. Because again, if you look at that passage in your bulletin, it's the uh, Isaiah 29 one, right there. And this is what Jesus is confronting. Like this is the model He's trying to break. He says, listen, but you're doing all these rules and regulations and you think by doing that stuff, you're actually knowing me more and getting closer to me. He's like, in fact, that's not how you do it. You know, I actually want your heart. I want you. He's like, I actually want you to do those things for the right reason. Don't do it because people are watching because they might hear, they might think it's impressive. It's like, I actually just want you. Even if you only make it to church once in a while. But it's like you're consistent, you know, with God in your own time and actually pursuing that devotion. That is what really matters. That's the Christian life lived out. And not everybody sees that and it doesn't really get a lot of press and you can't really impress a lot of people with that unless you go tell them about it, which I don't know why you would really do that because then you're doing it for the wrong reason, right? But that's what we're talking about, you know? The poor in spirit, we realize, oh my goodness, how could I think that? I could handle all these things in this day, be a light for you, and actually be victorious, and not even plug into you at any point in this day. Right? So that's like really what he's talking about. And that's where true happiness and the right attitudes, that's where it's really going to start. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they're actually going to see the kingdom of heaven. They'll see God for who He is. So that's where Jesus starts off. Uh, most happiness uh, articles and attitude articles probably would not start there. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And when I read a phrase like that, to me, and what Jesus is really trying to say, says, you know, people who are familiar with mourning, uh, who are familiar with like trials of life, difficulties, they're not cupcakes in the Christian faith. They're not like soft serve. Um, you know, as coaching basketball, um, there's another... Uh, uh, guy, uh, a bunch of guys, some friends that are coaches, and he was telling me one time how he was like, "You're really, you know, giving it to one of the athletes because he was just, you know, kind of cheating in the drills, doing the suicides, not touching the line, you know." And then there's other lines in the gym. He's trying to cut corners, you know. He's not. He's like kind of giving the lazy pass, you know, just not doing stuff the right way. And so this coach, you know, laid into him. Uh, he was pretty frustrated, and he says, "You know what?" He goes, "You are soft." He goes, "You are soft serve ice cream. You are a soft player." And he goes, if you approach life like that, you're going to be soft your whole life. I was like, geez, man, you have to explode on the kid like that. He's like, I know that wasn't right. You know? But the part of that that sticks out is like that softy, right? I don't want to be, you know, a Christian softy. Uh, and if you can, you would think that. You don't really have too many or very minimal difficulties and hardships in life. You'd be really happy, you know? And you may be filled with hope. But you probably wouldn't be. It's only in the middle of those things and when you've conquered them and come out victorious on the other end, now you've been instilled with hope. Right? And so, you're not so much of a softy anymore. You have a little bit of, geez, you know, I had this situation uh, in my life. I've had that situation in my life. These difficulties have happened and I've seen God come through. God loves that. Loves that. And that's where our faith can really grow. If we take advantage of it. If we take advantage of it. So, blessed are they uh, that mourn, for they will be comforted. Because hopefully, in the middle of those trials, in the middle of those storms, we actually go to Him and we let Him comfort us. Hopefully. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
there's an illustration for like uh, Sunday school stuff to kind of like uh, show what the word meek means. And what they uh, tell you is, in some of them, uh, they give you like a little Coke can. And I guess if I had one, I could do it. They give you like a Coke can. And what you do is, um, you know, you put it on the floor. And then you try and stand on it one leg. And you stand on it. And then what you do is while you're up there, um, you poke it with two fingers, then you see it collapse. And, uh, and then so the illustration is to show that meekness is focused strength, focused submission. And so when you're on that can and you're all the right way and you're perfectly balanced, you could actually stand on a Coke can and have it not crush. But if you waver just a little bit, or you go the other way, or you poke it, some outside force interacts with that thing and it will just collapse. And that's kind of what meekness is. It is focused strength. And in fact, in the language when they read it, they um, explain it in a way of a horse, a stallion, kind of coming under reins and you harness that. But he's still a stallion. And so when it, the, the time is right, I mean, he could take off, he could jump, he could do whatever, but it's harness and it's focus. And so that's meekness. It's not like, you know, just walk all over me and beat me up all the time and I'm still going to have a smile and be a Christian nice guy. No, not exactly. Not exactly. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And as a Christian, we should certainly have that, fung- that hunger and a thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I'm convinced, and at least one of my prayers as I was doing this, and kind of just you know preparing the message, um, is that I had to be emptied of a lot of stuff, crud, before I could really be filled up with what God has for me. And I think many times, we just need to be emptied of all of that, you know, geez, just the jealousness, the envy, um, just the strife, the anxiousness. You kind of just got to be empty and say, God, I just don't want it in my life. I want you to handle it. So just please handle it. And then there will be room now for His Spirit to just come in and fill us. And it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And so when someone is really following closely with God, you'll notice that they'll be you know, a little bit more patient, a little bit more merciful. Their fuse won't be maybe as short. They'll be able to extend a little bit more mercy, a little bit more grace. Uh, the pure in heart. Uh, in our society, we're always looking for pureness and things. So, you know, if you shop at Whole Foods, you go to like Whole Food stores, you know, I want the pure I want the pure stuff, you know. I want the no artificial stuff in it, um, no preservatives, nothing funk in there. I want pureness. And God says, "Blessed are you if you're actually pure in heart, for you will see God." Now, none of us will be perfectly pure, but God will actually come in through His Holy Spirit and help purify those things and take them away from us. And he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And I think that one is certainly straightforward. Those who have a gift and who are able to bring peace, not cause strife, not cause division, and be like a fault finder and be super critical all the time and cause problems. But they can actually come in and bring peace. And here's how he closes. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he follows it up in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so Jesus kind of closes up with saying, listen, if you're going to kind of follow lifestyle like this, and have this attitude, and you want to go this way, it's not real popular, and a lot of people might not like it. Uh, and persecution probably won't be too far away. And usually when you're living as a Christian, uh, there should at least be sometimes, a few times in your life, uh, that you should be getting some flack for like being a follower of God. And if you never get any for being like a professing Christian, you've got to ask yourself, geez, something that you're doing as a Christian just never really offends or bothers anybody, so I don't know. You might have to reevaluate that one a little bit. So, after reading all that, couple things. I think the first thing that we should do after reading all of it is certainly evaluate right away. That's like Christianity 101. Attitudes matter 
and your happiness will be tied with your attitudes. And so I think that, I hope that as you read it, you know, kind of evaluate yourself. Okay, which ones like um, do I really struggle with? Which one might be sort of a strength sometimes? Which ones do I really need God's help with? Um, where might God be trying to show me these things in my life? I mean, you should take a realistic, really uh, a good evaluation and ask yourself these things. When was the last time I was really poor in spirit and I really saw God? And I gave Him the time to actually show Himself to me. You know, on a natural basis, am I pretty merciful? Do I, am I patient? You know, these are things that we should like evaluate ourselves with as you look through it. Because that's Christianity 101 and from there God can really work. And here's the next thought that I thought um, really helped out a lot. Do not be held hostage by your situations. I think that's the huge one. Uh, Viktor Frankl was like the obvious illustration on that one. No matter how bad it gets, we still got our attitudes. And you know what? For us as Christians, since God is now in the picture and we actually have the faith in Jesus, hopefully the hope is never gone either. Right? We don't have to be held hostage by situations. We don't have to be held hostage by the frustration, the stress, the anxiety, the worry that comes with it. I would hope that, you know, as being a Christian, we just ask God for victory over some of those things Jesus, when they come along. Hopefully next time, I won't worry as much. I won't be so anxious about it. Maybe my knee-jerk reaction will be just to go to you, Lord, instead of maybe running to something else which would not be healthy or good for me. Alright, so we don't have to be held hostage by our situations. Things are going to happen for sure that are out of our control that we talked about, but we don't have to let that dominate what goes on inside of us. Because God can still use it and work through us, for sure. And the other nice thing is that God surrounds us with other people that are Christians that are just waiting to be there for us, to be your shoulder for, there for us, to pray with us, to help us. And that's why community and church is so important. So tremendous. So what we're going to do uh, is we're going to take a communion. And I guess if Matt, Krista, and Sean will come on up. Um, during communion, you know, communion uh, is a time where you're supposed to really just focus and kind of think back on, you know, who God is, what he, what he has done, what He might, you know, still be doing. And it's really uh, something, um, you know, that's for a Christian. And, and you don't really want to take part and do stuff if you don't really know what it's about. And so, uh, you know, if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian and you're still just trying to figure these things out, uh, I wouldn't take it. Certainly not take it. It'll do you more harm than good. Um, but during this time, uh, they're going to strum, strum through that last song that we did, uh, How Deep. Then they're going to sing it while they're doing that. Uh, Loretta's going to come around and pass our communion if you'd like. If you don't, uh, if you'd rather not take it, don't take it. Uh, but I would encourage you, you know, while they're singing and the song is going, really just give God access if you're that brave. Give God full access to your heart at this time. Church is, has to at least be where it happens. This is at least your best time to do it. Right now, at church, we're here. So I encourage you to give them that time. Uh, hold on to it, and then we'll take it together.
He says, uh, this is at the Last Supper, they did this uh, communion, and that's why we take it. And it says, while they're eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And so together we take it, and we eat. It says, and then he took the cup. He gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so we drink. And then Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And so we continue to take it because we're going to take it with Him at some point in heaven and that's going to be one tremendous communion service. I mean, can you imagine? It's going to be incredible. And so that's uh, why we take it together. And uh, Let's close in prayer and uh, what we'll do is uh, the band will... Um,
play a closing song uh, when we're done. And if you still need more time, you know, just to kind of sit down and pray um, for a while, certainly you can stay up here and do that. Uh, otherwise, we'll have uh, snacks downstairs, and you can go downstairs and uh, kind of hang out and do some fellowship. But if you want some time up here just to kind of hang out uh, and pray, uh, just because you need it, uh, feel free. All right? Um, God, we just... Um, we want to have those attitudes that you talked about, Jesus. Uh, we want it to be uh, a part of our lives or that's just ingrained in us, Father. No matter what the situation may bring, we want to be able to have you as our rock. Not only say it, but have it actually be a part of our life, God. And we pray, Lord, um, that even when we are weak, Lord, and when we have doubt, that you would give us strength. Help us to have enough courage... Uh, to bring our problems in life, Lord, the things that are outside of our control, to actually bring them to You. Help us to have enough courage to do that, Father. Uh, help us not take the easy way out and just kind of wallow in our sorrow. We thank You for the sacrifice that You made, Lord. And we thank You for this time. In Jesus' name, uh, Amen. And so again, if you want to stay up here uh, and pray, they're going to pray, play uh, So Good to Me uh, as we're leaving.
Are we done? <laughs> <laughs> Just a certain portion of 